It's my joy to open the Word with you this evening. Um, Tanner taught last week on discipleship, the call to discipleship and the high cost of discipleship. And what we're doing this fall is a series called The Lion and the Lamb, looking at the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And really tonight, we will begin looking at the person of Jesus. As such, in studying the person of Jesus, it seems that the the best place to start is at the very beginning. And no, I'm not talking about when Jesus was an infant or when he was a child. I'm talking about way before that. And the doctrine, the truth that we're going to study this evening is the pre-incarnate existence of Jesus. Well, what does this mean? What does it mean, pre-incarnate existence? Simply put, it means to exist before flesh. Uh, Incarnate means to take on flesh. So the doctrine of the pre-incarnate existence of Christ is the doctrine that he existed prior to entering a body. Whether this is a familiar truth to you or you're hearing it for the first time, I just ask you that even setting aside the excitement of the game as fun as we're going to have here, and for those of you that are going over there, uh, set that aside for a moment, and I want you to listen to what the Word of God has to say, because this is a very exciting truth. And so I want to begin by addressing the importance of this doctrine. If you look at your outline, that's the first section. And it is without a doubt one of the most fundamental and important doctrines in the Christian faith. In fact, I would go so far as to say it is at the core of what we believe. If he did not exist prior to being born of the Virgin Mary, prior to living out his life on earth and taking up the cross, then all was for naught. Well, why? Why is this so important? Let me show you a few reasons why. Firstly, if Christ did not exist prior to his incarnation, then he would not be eternal and he would therefore cease to be God. You see, the eternality of God is, well, it's what makes him God. He, he, above all other created things, is eternal. Just listen to a few verses. Psalm 90, verse 2, it says, Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Genesis 21, verse 33, Abraham called upon the name of the Lord, the eternal God. Revelation 1, 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. God is infinite in his existence, which means that he is not bound by matter, space, or time. He's not bound by space because he's omnipresent. He's not bound by matter because he's almighty or omnipotent. And he's not bound by time because he's eternal. In fact, in Genesis 1.1, we see God created all of these things. In Genesis 1.1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. For those of you that know anything about physics, uh, you know that without matter, space and time couldn't exist. They're, They're equally dependent upon one another. And implied from this then is that God existed before creation, which means God existed before time. Have you thought about that before? God is timeless, and he's therefore altogether eternal. The creator God of the universe is eternal, and not to be eternal means that he would not be God. Therefore, anyone or anything that claims to be God must be eternal. Are you tracking? This isn't true of any idols of the Old Testament, right? They built a golden calf, all the idols through the Old Testament. This isn't true of any false claims of deity in religions that we see today. Their gods are not eternal. Now, if we consider the fact that Jesus claimed to be God, this doctrine becomes crucial. 
If Jesus is not eternal, then he cannot be God. And if Jesus is not God, then the Christian faith collapses. If Jesus is not God, then we have no trinity. If Jesus is not God, then the sacrifice made upon the cross is altogether useless. And if Jesus' death on the cross was useless, then we, brothers and sisters, are still under the guilt of our sin, and we are currently under the wrath of God for that sin. And so we see the importance of this doctrine. But secondly, if Christ did not exist prior to his incarnation, then this makes him a liar. Jesus claimed and taught many truths pertaining to the Father. He, he represented him perfectly in his earthly ministry. Both in his word and his life, he embodied God. He was God in the flesh. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus was the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. John 6.38, Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And beyond this, he himself claimed to be God in several instances, one of which was John 8.58, where he said, I am, linking himself back to Exodus when God uh, was speaking of himself. However, if Jesus' deity is not supported with a pre-incarnate existence, then Jesus is not God and would therefore be a liar. And if he's a liar, well, that just changes everything. God cannot lie, so that'd be another strike against his deity. But beyond this, could anything that he said really be trusted? I don't think so. How would we know what was true and what wasn't true? Even for the unbeliever, this would change things because unbelievers will look at Jesus' life and say, he was a great teacher. They're not going to say he was God, but he was a great teacher. Even they would have to readily admit that he actually wasn't a good teacher. He was a liar, and he was therefore a heretic. Right? Well, interestingly, this is what Jesus was hung for by his own people, right? Being called a blasphemer, being called a liar. And so we see that all of this hinges on the doctrine of the pre-incarnate existence of Christ. If there's no pre-incarnate existence, there's no deity. And if there's no deity, then everything else in the Christian faith collapses. Well, to this point, you've just listened to me talk, but why don't we open our Bibles and see what Scripture has to say on this matter. My goal is to overwhelm you with abundant biblical proof of this doctrine, to leave no one with any room to wiggle their way out of this truth. And so let's begin by looking at the New Testament at a few passages that affirm this and flip to Philippians chapter 2. As you're going to Philippians chapter 2 to set the context, Paul is reminding the Philippians to act toward one another in humility. He says in verse 3 of chapter 2 to regard one another as more highly than yourself. And then in verse 5, he begins to remind them of their example of humility. So in the New Testament, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says to the church in Philippi, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. We'll stop there just for consideration. Jesus demonstrated the greatest form of humility possible by leaving heaven and coming to earth. He was God, and yet he set aside the use of his divine attributes. He forsook the divine privileges, and he added, he limited himself, a human body, the human nature. 
These three verses that we just looked at in Philippians are so deep and profound, but what I want to glean from this is this. Listen here. The whole premise of Paul's argument hinges on the fact that Jesus existed prior to entering a body. If not, then how is there humility shown in that? He's using Jesus as an example of humility, and if he didn't exist prior to coming to earth, there's no humility in that. But Paul's point here stands that Christ is the example of humility because he gave up his pre-incarnate state. Well, other passages also speak of his pre-incarnate existence. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since the children share in flesh and blood, he too, being Jesus, he too partook of the same. And there are several passages that refer to Jesus as the agent of creation, him being the creator. 1 Corinthians 8.6 says, There's one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him, Jesus, all things were created both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. But perhaps the most clear and straightforward teaching on this doctrine is found in John chapter 1. So if you're in Philippians, flip back to the Gospel of John, the fourth book of the New Testament, to your left, and go to chapter 1. Unlike the other Gospels, John does not give a standard introduction. Rather than giving a purpose for his book or stating who the author is and who the audience is or listing a genealogy, John launches right in with a doctrinal truth from the beginning of the foundations of the earth. First, just look at John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 with me. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now what's interesting about verse 1 is that it says that which was in the beginning and was with God was the Word. And yet in verse 2 it says that he was in the beginning with the God or with God. And so who's the he? Well, we know there's a connection with the he and the Word, right? And in fact, we also know that the he was with God and he actually was God if we say that he was the Word. Well, let's just keep reading for clarification. Verse 3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Well, who do we know brought all things into being according to Genesis 1.1? God, right? And yet we saw earlier Jesus claiming to be the creator, and now here it's saying that he, this word, brought all things into being. And so this is further affirmation that the three verses here are talking about Jesus, right? And in case there's any question, flip to verse 14, chapter 1. Look at verse 14. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this same Word from verses 1 to 3, who existed in the beginning, who was with God, and who actually was God, this same word became flesh and dwelt among them. Brothers and sisters, who was John talking about? You know, right? Jesus. Look at verse 15. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and t- truth were realized through Jesus Christ. 
the word referred to here is none other than Jesus Christ. Do you believe it? By the way, as a technical point, look at verse 15. John says, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. So John says Jesus existed before him. Who was technically born first? Well, according to Luke 1, 26, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and announces to her that she's going to bear a son. And she runs immediately to Elizabeth, who's pregnant six months with John the Baptist. Who's older? John the Baptist. They both went through nine months pregnancies. And yet John says that he existed before him. What's the point? John knew this truth. John knew where Jesus came from. He knew he came from heaven. And so from verse 15, from verses 1 to 3, from these other texts that we've looked at so far, we've seen clear textual proof of Jesus' pre-incarnate existence. But I want to ask the question now, what did Jesus say about this? Did he ever claim to have a pre-incarnate existence? What do you think? Probably, right? Stay in the Gospel of John. Flip to chapter 3. Look at verse 13. All of these will be Jesus speaking. In verse 13, he says to Nicodemus, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Look at verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In order to give his Son, it implies that he, ex- he was already with him, right? John chapter 3, verse 31 He who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Jesus speaking about himself. Flip over to John chapter 5, verse 36. I'll pick up in the second half. It says, For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. John chapter 6, verse 33 says, For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. John chapter 6, verse 62 What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to, ascending to where he was before? Flip to John chapter 16, verse 28. Jesus speaking again, he says, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world, and I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. Could it be any more clear than that? John chapter 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer in verse 18, he says, God, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Guys, the truth of Jesus' pre-incarnate existence is unavoidable. There's no way around it within the text. To add to this, Revelation 1.18, 21.6, and 22.13, Jesus says of himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, meaning that he has no beginning and he will have no end. Now, as if the straightforward teaching of the New Testament were not enough. The Old Testament is also covered in references to the pre-incarnate Christ. To get things started, though, stay in John and flip to John chapter 12. I want to show you one text that's going to launch us back there. 
And in John chapter 12, we see this incredible (laughs) truth displayed again. Uh, Look at verse 36, and we'll start in the second sentence. It says, These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and he has hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes, and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. Verse 41, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Now within the context of this passage, who is John saying that Isaiah saw in verse 41? And I think the answer is what maybe you're thinking. It's Jesus, right? But I want to show you this text. When he's talking about in verse 41, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory, I want to show you exactly what Isaiah said. And so flip back to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah. And if you go about the middle of your Bible, it might be a little bit to the right, after Psalms, after Proverbs, and I want to look at Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. And even as I say that chapter and those verses, some of you are immediately thinking, you know this passage. But I know for me at least, I never thought of it in the way that John is linking this to the person of Jesus. And so look at Isaiah 6, verse 1. It says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Okay, let's stop there just for a quick uh, clarification. The train of a robe is that which trails behind. It signifies honor or majesty, right? The Queen of England will carry a long train. If you think of a wedding, the bride has a long train to represent honor. And what does it say about the king's, uh, sorry, the Lord's train? It says his train filled the temple. The highest honor, the highest majesty. Verse 2, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. In other words, two of them he's covering his eyes out of humility toward God. Two of them he's covering his feet out of humility toward God. And with two of them he's flying in order to serve the Lord. This creature's purpose is to honor and serve this holy being that Isaiah is in the midst of. Verse 3, And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And you know what, guys? These guys, they cry this out, holy, 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 incessantly. They never cease to say this. This is how holy this God that we're seeing in this text is. It says in 4, The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Filling with smoke, representing his wrath coming from this holiness. His justice coming from this holiness. And in verse 5, Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongues. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Who's he talking about in this passage? Did you ever think about that? 
John tells us in John chapter 12, verse 41, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Who's him? It's the same him that the people weren't believing in in John chapter 12, Jesus Christ. Furthermore, we know that God is spirit. God told Moses, right? No one can see God and live. So I'd submit to you that any physical representation of God is the second person of the Godhead, Jesus. And just as a little carrot on top, look at verse 8. This isn't just Jesus. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Right? Same language we see in Genesis chapter 1. The Trinity. Jesus is there in the physical manifestation, but the Trinity is present in this vision. Flip from Isaiah to Daniel. Another example many of you will be familiar with. To your right, after Ezekiel. Right after Ezekiel, after Jeremiah. Daniel chapter 3, verse 24. Context is Daniel and his friends are in captivity from the Babylonians. uh, But they believe in God. And they're going to be faithful to God. And King Nebuchadnezzar doesn't like it. And so King Nebuchadnezzar has his three friends bound and he's ready to kill them and he's going to throw them into the fire. And look at Daniel chapter 3, verse 23. It says, These three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. They're gone, right? No chance. But look at verse 24. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste and he said to his high officials, Was it not three men that we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Verse 26, then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door to the furnace of the blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the most high God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair on their head singed, nor was their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. Amazing, amazing, amazing story. And yet, sometimes we read right through that and don't think, well, who was this man? It was Jesus. It was Jesus. Just like in Genesis 1.26, when God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, Jesus was there as well. He was there in the, in the midst of creation, way back in Genesis chapter 1. In Micah 5.2, the, the prophet Micah proclaiming God's word, God says, one will go forth from me to be a ruler in Israel. Right? He's saying, one will go forth from me. This is God speaking. In Isaiah, flip back to Isaiah. You're in Daniel. Flip back to the left to Isaiah chapter 9. Verse 6. Prophetic, again, the prophet Isaiah proclaiming uh, the future. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father. Prince of Peace. Eternal Father implies before and after. But in addition to comforter, creator, deliverer, like we saw in Daniel 3, we also see Jesus carrying out the judgment of God. In John 5, 22, uh, 
it says, for not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son. It repeats that same thing in verse 27. So we know that God has given the authority and the position to judge as his son. And what's incredible is that we see this same role played out even before Jesus came to earth. From Isaiah, flip to your left to the book of Joshua. We're doing a bit of a survey here, but I think it's helpful. Joshua is the sixth book of the Bible after um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Joshua chapter 6, oh, Joshua chapter 5. And going into verse 13, the people of Israel have been set free from captivity from the Egyptians, and they're re-entering the promised land. Joshua has just taken over from Moses as the leader, and he is leading the people into the promised land, and they're conquering the peoples that are in their land, the wicked people in the land. And so in verse 13, they're at the gates of Jericho, and it says, Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversary? He said, no, rather indeed, I, I come now as captain of the hosts of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to, to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went in, no one came, no one went out, no one came in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. And we'll stop there. But let me point out three observations. Number one, he's given the title the commander of the Lord's host, which is not a phrase that would be given to an angel. And it's not a phrase that would be given to any other being than Jesus, like we see in Revelation. <coughs> Number two, this context flows right into chapter 6, and he's addressed as the Lord in verse 2 of chapter 6. And number 3, angels are never worshipped in the Bible, and when they are, they don't like it. They refuse worship, and yet this, this being in, in chapter 5 receives worship. And in fact, not only does he receive it, but he says, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. I think that's Jesus, don't you? From Joshua, uh, I'll just summarize Exodus 12. Uh, again, the Egyptians have captivity of the nation of Israel, and God has told Pharaoh to let his people go. They've refused, so God has implemented plagues. And the last plague is to kill the firstborn. <coughs> However, in order to pass over Israel's firstborn, he says, take some blood and smear it on your door. And then we pick up in verse 23 of chapter 12 of Exodus, it says, For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. Again, who carries out the judgment of God? Who's the destroyer? In all likelihood, it's Jesus, again. Other appearances of Jesus include Daniel 10, where Jesus appears to Daniel as a comforter. Genesis 18 he appears as one of the three men that appear to uh, Abraham and Sarah. Genesis 32, when Jacob wrestles with God, the physical incarnation of God being Jesus. So, guys, let us not think of him as simply an infant crying in a manger. Yes, he took on flesh, but do you see his role all through history, all through mankind's history? 
And really moving to a really, really neat consideration of this is this phrase, the angel of the Lord. Turn to Exodus chapter 3. <coughs> and in Exodus chapter 3, we'll start in verse 1. This is exciting. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. says, Now Moses was pasturing the flock for his father-in-law Jethro the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west, uh, to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. What's the point here? Well, let me point out a few observations from this text. Number one, let me give you a few reasons, I guess, why the angel of the Lord, I believe, is Jesus. Number one, he claimed to be God, and he spoke as God. And we'll see that not only in this text, but in other texts as well. Number two, he is identified as God by the author. Did you notice this? It says the angel of the Lord appeared in the bush, and then the next time it refers to it, it says, so God said from the bush. This is one conversation going on. The being in the bush and Moses. And yet it interchanges names. And thirdly, This angel of the Lord claims to exercise the prerogatives of God. In other words, he promises to do the works of God. An angel can't carry out the works of God, and yet the angel of the Lord time and time again says, I will do what only God can do. In Exodus, uh, you're in Exodus, flip back to Genesis 16. We'll see another example of this. Hagar, Abraham's second wife, has just been abandoned, and she's wandering. And in Genesis chapter 16, Verse 7, it says, Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. Verse 8, He said to Hagar, Sarah's maid, Where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will, they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, Further, behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all his brothers. (coughs) Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God who sees. For she said, Have I even remained alive after seeing him? Again, what do we see here? Well, we see speaking on the behalf of God. We see promising to carry out what only God can do. We see Sarah calling him God, and we see the author calling him God. And yet, we are introduced to this being as the angel of the Lord. Well, how do we solve this? 
I believe the angel of the Lord was Jesus Christ. Other examples of the angel of the Lord are in Zechariah 1, verse 12 and 13. And here we see a distinction. So the angel of the Lord is not God, but he is called God. So in Zechariah 1, verse 12, listen to this. The angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah with which you have been indignant these 70 years? And the Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me with gracious and comforting words. So we see the angel of the Lord, and really in this passage as a whole, you would see a distinction between the angel of the Lord, the Lord, and another angel, an ordinary angel. By the way, do you notice that I keep saying the angel? And the text keeps saying the angel. It's not an angel but it's the technical title used in the context of the angel of the Lord. Judges chapter 6, listen to this, in verse 11, it says, The angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Eberzite, and his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress. And so what happens is the angel of the Lord comes and sits under this tree with Gideon, and he begins to have a conversation with him. And then in 14, Along this same conversation, same flow of talk, in verse 14 it says, The Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? And again in verse 16 it says, But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you and you shall defeat Midian as one man. What's the point? Well, again, within that passage, it starts as the angel of the Lord and then the title is changed to the Lord, Yahweh. 2 Samuel 24, verse 16 says, When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, It is enough. Now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arunah, the Jebusite. Listen, gang, Jesus came as a lamb. Here's the point. Jesus came as a lamb, but he will come again as a lion. So far we've seen that he carried out the judgment of God all throughout the Old Testament. And this really fits with what the Bible says about his role now and in the end times as well. In Revelation 6.16, it says, The people will cry out to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb. Revelation 19.15, it says, From his mouth, Jesus, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress and the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. This is a theme that we see throughout the whole of the Bible. Before Jesus' time and right now and in the end times, Jesus will act as God's judge. Are you seeing Jesus a bit differently now? I know through my study, I I sure have. And so, as we close, I just want to consider three quick implications of this doctrine, right? Jesus existed pre-incarnately. What does this matter for us? Well, number one, we know then that Jesus is God. Only God is eternal, and Jesus existed eternally. Therefore, proving this doctrine validates Scripture's claims of Christ's deity. Jesus was God. Therefore, A, we can have a real knowledge of God. Jesus said in John 14, 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So if you want to know God, look at Jesus. And B, under the fact that we can know that Jesus is God, is since Jesus is God, then the cross is efficacious. In other words, the cross has a bearing effect on our lives. The cross actually does mean something. And it does have redeeming power to save. And if you think about this, God entered a body at a point in history and died for the sins of mankind. He died for our wretched sin. 
And when I look at Jesus in the Old Testament and his role that he had, man, that moves me to want to love him and serve him. Friends, there's really only one response to this doctrine, and that is to throw yourself wholly and fully upon the person of Jesus. He's God, and he entered a body and died for you and me. Secondly, though, an implication from this doctrine is that we see Jesus' incredible humility. I don't know about you, but again, looking at his role in the Old Testament, and then you consider what he gave up, the position, the power, the authority that Jesus gave up to enter a body, to become a baby. Remember the captain of the Lord of hosts before Joshua that said, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. I didn't read this, but there's another text in Isaiah that says that Jesus, again, the angel of the Lord, wiped out 185 Assyrians just like that. The next morning they woke up and saw the bodies dead. 185,000. He gave up that power and became a baby and then grew and became a man and died on a cross for us. That is humility. And you remember we opened with Philippians 2, but listen to these words again. It says, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the example of humility that we see from our Lord. No greater act of humility has ever occurred, nor will it ever occur, because no one will ever or has ever given up what Jesus gave up in his pre-incarnate state. And when I ask the question, well, why did he do this? Or maybe you're wondering why. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. That is wonderful truth. And this segues into the third and final implication, which is that Jesus deserves our worship and obedience. He is the God who made the worlds before man even existed, and yet he humbled himself for our sake. He deserves our worship, not money, not school, not a religion. No other object deserves our worship than Jesus Christ, than God, the triune God, He deserves your heart's full affection, praise, and adoration. And further, he deserves your will's full attention. In light of what Jesus has done for us, how do you respond when when you read a command of his? If scripture is authoritative and we look and we see commands, do you sit and think about it and contemplate, hmm, should I do this, should I not? Or, oh, that's really going to change this part of my life. Or are we like a good soldier who says, yes, sir? Right? It's no wonder Paul uses that analogy of a good soldier. We ought to be men and women who say, yes, sir, you're my king, whatever you want. And if you try to put yourself in Jesus' shoes, existing before all this power, I mean, he's God. He humbles himself, dies for you, and then he's created you, and you give him a little bit of your trust or a little bit of your affection or a little bit of your life or a little bit of your obedience. It's really no wonder in Luke 6.46, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? He deserves worship and obedience from all of us. Guys, the dichotomy could not be stronger between those who will believe and those who will not. Those who will bow the knee now by choice and those who will bow in the end by force. And so, just to summarize, I want to leave you with this question that Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? And are you living like that? Let's bow as we pray.
Father, we've seen wonderful things in your word this evening. Uh, God, I just ask that they would grip us. Lord, that as we look at the person of Jesus existing before the foundations of the world, before he came to the earth, before he lived, and now, Lord, that he is in glory with you again and will come again as judge. God, I pray that everyone in this room would know him, would love him, would worship him, and would obey him. Father, your son, you have, you have exalted, Lord. I pray that we would love him and adore him for the rest of our lives. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.